Hello and welcome to In the Envelope, an awards podcast. I am your host, Jack Smart, the awards editor at Backstage, your guide to the acting industry and the most trusted name in casting. We're here to talk with some of the contenders of the 2017 Emmy race, who share their advice on the craft and business of becoming an award-winning actor. This season of In the Envelope is brought to you by HBO. Well, you know, I believe in the social Darwinism of Hollywood and and Broadway. I mean, really, if you put yourself out there and do your best with all this, show business will let you know if it wants to include you or not. There's no doubt of that. It's not show business isn't shy. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode three of In the Envelope. Perhaps my favorite episode yet. Am I allowed to play favorites? Yeah, I think, I'm asking. I think that's fair enough. Okay, great. Given the guests that we've got on Given this week. Given the guests, we have two really, really amazing guests this week. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is joining us first, and then Hank Azaria, both both legends in their own right. Yeah. Um, one is a six-time Emmy nominee, and one is a six-time Emmy winner. So we got the the star wattage in this episode. <laughs> wattage, right? Yeah, that, star that works. Wa- the star power. We really got the star power in this episode. Uh, Jamie, you were saying that your impression of Elizabeth Moss, given her body of work, was a little different going into this interview. Yeah, I thought based on the caliber of the projects that she's been involved in, she Mm -hmm. would be quite serious, quite earnest. But actually, I was surprised at how playful and enthusiastic she was. Totally. Really lovely. You know, really really great to talk to and very down to earth and and things. Um, And... You know, clearly takes her job very seriously and is very eloquent, but uh, also very personable as well. Yeah. She's very accessible in talking about her craft and how she creates these characters. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's a very good time to be Elizabeth Moss because she is the leading character in Hulu's new drama, The Handmaid's Tale, which is sort of taking the world by storm with its all-too-relevant subject matter. And hats. And hats. She's giving a really great performance inside the confines of that those iconic hats. Um, in addition, she was just in a film that won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and season two of Top of the Lake, which is a miniseries that she won a Golden Globe for a couple years ago, is back this year. In addition to, of course, the role that she's most well known for, Peggy Olsen, on AMC's Mad Men, where she got five Emmy nominations. I'm thinking this year for The Handmaid's Tale that she's a definite contender. We really got into it with her. Yeah. Should we go straight to it? We should go straight to it. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by HBO's original comedy series, Divorce, starring Sarah Jessica Parker and Thomas Hayden Church. Divorce portrays the experiences of a woman who finds that making a clean break is harder than she thought. For your Emmy consideration and outstanding comedy series and all other categories. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know that you are undoubtedly in the middle of a huge, epic press tour for this amazing new show you have. Yeah, yeah, I've been, been doing a lot. I bet. I know you did a lot of press for, for Mad Men and even for Top of the Lake, but this must be different as the lead in a series. What exactly does the, the campaign or the publicity aspect of Handmaid's Tale, how, what does that entail? Um, I mean, there's a couple of things that are different. You know, one, you're sort of uh, launching a new show. So there's obviously more to do there to just sort of make people aware of what it is. Um, and then, yeah, I think being the lead of the show definitely puts more on your shoulders as far as uh, the press that you should do. 
Um, but for me, it's been, although it's, you know, it, it has been a lot for me, it's been rewarding in the sense of I'm very proud of the show. And so to be able to talk about something that you actually enjoy talking about is mm. much better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and going off of that, you are also the producer of this show, correct? Yes. One of them. It's- yeah. Yeah. And so how, how has, how does that factor into the the campaigning, especially campaigning for Emmy season itself? I mean, it really just factors so much into the pre-production, production and Mm post-production, you know, um, as far as just the work kind of, I've been, I've honestly been working on the show for over a year now because I signed on in April Mm -hmm. of last year. And when we wrapped shooting in February, you know, we continued on in, in post up until, well, there's still, I say just mixed 10, um, which, uh, yeah. And then, so yeah, 10 isn't even quite done yet, but it's basically done. Um, and then we immediately started sort of rolling right into season two. So now we're, so the post is the second, the post sort of finished on one pre on two has started. So, <laughs> so now it just sort of feels like it's not, it, it hasn't ended. <laughs> right. It's I mean, I can't believe you can handle anything else on your schedule. You're also top of the lake season two is coming up, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you were in a short film at Tribeca film festival. I mean, you are, you are everywhere <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. It's been a good, it's been a good couple of years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Top of the Lake is coming up soon. And then, yeah, I had another film at Tribeca as well called Chuck, uh, formerly, formerly called The Bleeder. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's, and then I have another film at, uh, of, at Cannes that I'm really excited about called The Square. So it's good. You know, I think it always looks to people as if everything is sort of happening at once, but it's, you know how it is. It's of course, it's, it's spread out. <laughs> sure. Sure. I mean, when we last spoke, you were in rehearsal, you were in previews for the Heidi Chronicles on Broadway as Mad Men was wrapping up. So you were somehow simultaneously rehearsing while doing press for that show. It does seem like even though there are peaks and valleys in your schedule, that it seems that you're busy all the time. And that's just how it goes. Yeah, it has kind of been a pretty intense year and a half, um, mm-hmm. two years, honestly. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a crazy time. That was not ideal doing press while <laughs> doing eight shows a week. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you know, you can't you can't really pick and choose when these things happen. Mm. You just kind of have to throw all in and 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 do as much as you as you can, and also mm. try to protect yourself and make sure that you're able to to you know do the work that you need to do. Right. Well, and I've always wondered in terms of the Emmy. I suppose also for Tony nominations as well, but you either, you get an Emmy nomination or even before you get an Emmy nomination, do you decide, here's my plan of attack, here's exactly what I'm going to be doing to campaign for this award? Do you think of it as a campaign and and who do you work with to make that happen? Um, I suppose you can think of it as a campaign, yeah. I mean, for for me, I, I work with, uh, I have a fantastic team and my publicist, Erica Gray, I've worked with for I guess five years now or so, maybe longer. Um, and at this point it's just, it's, she knows me so well mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it's fantastic because, you know, we're also friends and there's just not a lot of 
what do you want to do? What do you not want to do? She basically knows what I, what I am interested in Mm -hmm. and what I'm not. And it's all very sort of civilized. And I, and I think that for us, we, you know, we don't think of it necessarily in those terms. It's more about getting the word out about the show and, Mm -hmm. um, and getting people to watch it and getting people to enjoy it. And then whatever comes from that is, it's right. just the cherry on top, you know? Gotcha. I mean, yeah. for me, I, for me, the best work that I can do is, is there on the stage or is there on the screen? You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the work that I put in and that's the work that I enjoy doing the most. And all of the other stuff um, is, is important, but obviously as an artist is secondary. And that's why I have people who can worry about it for me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So that I can so that I can worry about acting, which is what I really like to do. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like it's yeah. nice to win a Golden Globe for a role, but it's even nicer if winning that Golden Globe means that more people will see that show, right? That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's like if for us, you know, getting picked up for a second season of mm-hmm. The Handmaid's Tale, that was the that was the goal. You yeah. Know? That's what we wanted. That's and that we wanted that because we we wanted the chance to be able to tell more of the story and because I mm-hmm. so enjoy and love playing that character. So for me, I, I, that's the, that's the big win is being able to go back and play that character more. You know, I think it's important as an artist to have a great team in place that can worry about all of that stuff that surrounds it, you know, all the hubbub and the award shows and the mm. press and everything so that you don't have, you don't have to, so you can right. do your job, which is, which is for me, you know, whether it's going out and doing eight shows a week or mm-hmm. doing, you know, 70, 80 hour weeks on <laughs> tail, that's where my heart, that's where my heart lies, you know? Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, you've also, I'd love to get into it about, about Offred and who, like who she is. You told backstage that playing a character is like putting on a good pair of jeans. And I'm wondering, is that <laughs> true for this character? Yeah, I suppose so. It really is. Um, you know, it, with somebody like Offred, I mean, you have this built-in, uh, these built-in stakes that mm. are so incredible for an actress. You know, I, after mm. Mad Men and sort of Top of the Lake and various film roles, for me, I'm always looking for, okay, what can I do that's going to challenge me? What can mm-hmm. I do that's going to be, that's going to be challenging uh, from, from what I've done before? And, and then you get handed The Handmaid's Tale, this dystopian you know, (laughs) theocracy, totalitarian (laughs) government, uh, you know, with the sort of, um, these women enslaved and, you know, your family ripped from your arms and, and as an actor, you go, okay, yeah, that's definitely, that's challenging. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. That'll do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it really does. You know, it's such a, for me, it's such a, a step up, um, challenge wise to have these giant stakes that I have to deal with in every episode. And then also this feeling of now in season two, you know, we have so much left to say and and there's so many more places that we can go. And it just seems like um, the field is kind of wide open, which is really exciting. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really like, this season was honestly every single script, every single episode I sort of had thought that I had done my most challenging work in the previous episode. Wow. And then I would get the new script and be like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah, the stakes somehow. I was wrong. This is going to be the hardest one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you also do a ton of really amazing voiceover work in this series that 
it feels unprecedented. It's not a complicated trick, but you are there on camera and you're not speaking a word. But in voiceover, Alfred is narrating her her actions and what she's seeing and what she's thinking. And you've said that you've lined up each piece of narration with each shot. So I'm wondering, how do you get in the same mindset in the recording studio and then on camera for each specific moment? Yeah, um, I actually find that the whole voiceover process was extremely helpful for me. You know, when we did mm-hmm. the first episode, um, we we recorded, it was the only time that we recorded the voiceover before we shot. After we started shooting, we, we uh, refined the process because mm-hmm. I felt that it was important to shoot first and then do the voiceover afterwards. But it was actually very helpful for the first episode because I sort of started to find June in mm. that little dark studio. And I got a chance to kind of practice, in a, for lack of a better word, and, and try to explore who she was before I got on camera. And then I just found that the, the voiceover was also extremely helpful in the sense of, here you have, you know, in a scene, you're, you're, you're always supposed to be having some sort of inner life. I mean, you're mm. not supposed to be just standing there like a statue. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I had this beautiful voiceover written out in the script that I could memorize and I could listen to and, or say in my head um, as I was doing a scene. So it was kind of perfect for me as an actor because, mm-hmm. I mean, what's better than that? Having this sort of inner life written out for you um, on the page. I mean, it was fantastic. Uh, So between that and the book and using whatever um, inner life or, you know, first person narrative that was in the book, I was, Mm. uh, I found it all kind of extremely helpful. And then, you know, we treated and I treated every voiceover as if it was, you know, a shooting day or an acting Mm. session. You know, it was, it wasn't just for, oh, like there's a difference between that and ADR, you know, when you do the post-production looping around. For me, voiceover is very different. I usually stand up for ADR. For voiceover, I'd sit down. I, mm. uh, I, it was like acting without a camera. I mean, I really tried to make sure it, I was giving it as much of my heart and soul in a recording studio as I would if I was on camera. And I think that mm. um, I think that that is why you. I think you can hear that, which um, was my intention. Gosh, that's so cool. I want to ask you some yeah. rapid fire questions, and you can. Answer okay. from the gut. Okay, you got it. <laughs> All right. Um, who is your favorite actor right now? God. Um, <laughs> but I don't know why I just like totally blank. Um, <laughs> loving. I mean, it's, I, I, I always say Marion Cotillard because it's, I, I just mm. think everything she does is absolute genius. Excellent. Yes. Wonderful. Um, last TV show you watched, I guess, other than Handmaid's Tale. Oh, I'm watching um, 13 Reasons Why right now. Oh, cool, cool. Okay. Well, and my next question is, when was the last time you saw something in a TV show that, that made you just sit up and go, wow, like that, that is an amazing performance? Oh, my God. The thing is, there's so many incredible performances on TV right now. Sure. Um, I would have to say Jessica Lang, Jessica Lang in Feud. Mm. Yeah, cool. I mean, there's literally nothing better than that woman and, and, and that <laughs> part. I mean, it's like... I can't. I, the whole thing is just incredible. And by those last couple of episodes, I don't know uh, if you've seen it. Oh, yes. Man, man, oh, man, what she I does. Know. The vulnerability, <laughs> the, the, oh, my God, the fragility that she brings to this woman who is 
generally known to be the coldest, mm. harshest woman in history, yep. in, in cinematic history, you know, and she sure. just makes her this like wilting, beautiful flower. Oh, I Ugh. can't, I could go on and on. I know we are not, I feel like we are not worthy of that performance of, of, it's so true i agree (laughs) and i also want to see like 10 more hours of just Jessica Lange playing joan crawford (laughs) well and for me that show i miss mad men so much and i miss like the feel of mad men and the era and the costumes and so for me that show kind of filled that gap for me a little bit oh absolutely i mean for actors or theater people i mean it's ridiculous it's like like fabulous broad <laughs> actresses in amazing costumes yep. divas like i mean the whole thing is just like you can just eat it up <laughs> eating it up yeah that's the best well and so going off of that what this is such a broad question but what is great acting to you <laughs> um i think great acting is telling the story that the that the writer intended to tell, you know, I mean, that's all it really is. That's why I look for good writing because you can only be as good as the writing is. Mm. And, you know, I don't think there's anything that defines a, a good performance or a bad performance or good acting versus bad acting. There's so many different ways that you can play a role, you know, mm-hmm. but for me, it's, is the writing that the writer wrote is, is what is on the page and what is intended. Do you feel that mm. when you watch? You know, are you yeah. feeling what the writer intended you to feel? And that to me is what good acting is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It does kind of all come back to writing, doesn't it? That very first step. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, it, it's about what the writer intended the audience to feel because they mm. may not be pleasant feelings or they, mm. they may not be um, expected feelings, but is it what was intended? Then, then yes. And that, right. that's a good performance. Excellent. Excellent. Um, what about, okay, last question. Your number one piece of audition advice for actors who want to star on television or even win an Emmy Award? <laughs> Gosh, there's so many I could give. Um, I would say the number one piece of advice that I re- ever received was from mm. Jane Campion for Top of the Lake mm-hmm. for my audition. I talked to her on the phone and she said to me, don't worry about hitting the bullseye, just get the dart on the board. And Mm -hmm. for me, that was the greatest gift she could have given me because it sort of released any anxiety that I felt. I was still really nervous, but it just made me feel like I wasn't, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to win a Tony in that audition. I was just (laughs) trying to give an approximation, a sort of a dart on the board of what the, what the character might be. And I think that um, without any rehearsal, without any talking with the director, without anything like that, that's the best you can do, you know? And I think there's something about that advice that also releases something in you and that mm. you relax a little bit and lets you not try to achieve some sort of idea of what mm. you think they're looking for, which they may not even be looking for. So, right. Right. <laughs> you yeah, know, excellent advice. Okay, good. Well, it was good advice for me. I did get the part, yeah, so I'm passing part. it on. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. one single. And that's it interesting. Worked. That was only a couple of years ago that you got that advice. It must have been. It was, um, no, it was about five years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah not that long ago. And oh, I still use it. Off. I still use that advice. Like, 
if I have to go in for an interview or an audition, I still do it. I still go, you know what? Just get the dart on the board. Don't worry about the bullseye. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Gosh, thank you so much yeah. for taking the time. This is great. You're I, welcome. Is that it? I could talk about acting all day. <laughs> I would love to talk about acting all day. <laughs> I would love to ask the, the question of like, step-by-step, step, how, do, how does an actor win an Emmy Award? But I'm not sure if that's something that you want to discuss. <laughs> Especially as you gave such a answer about, like, it's about the, of course, it's about the work first. And any of the publicity or any of the campaigning or any of the actual awards are essentially icing on the cake, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it is. I, I think anyone that, I, I think you get yourself into a dangerous place mm. if that's what you're trying to do when you're, sure. um, when you're performing, you know, and, and when we're also living a, in a world right now where there's so many incredible performances, you know, so how do you even, I don't know how one even ever chooses. There's so much great work out there and sometimes you're in and sometimes you're out. And Mm -hmm. I think you have to just kind of, I think the way to remain sane and the way to remain, also the way to, you know, preserve your integrity is to always concentrate on the work Mm -hmm. first and put that first and make sure that you're proud of what you did and you gave it your all and, you worked as hard as you could and you did everything you could for yourself and for your, your own performance and your own integrity. And beyond that, I mean, Lord knows if anyone (laughs) knows they should, they can feel free to tell me because (laughs) 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 I don't, I just don't, I just don't think there is any formula. I think you just do the best work you can. And like you said, whatever else happens, is icing on the cake and that includes reviews and that includes good press and includes it all. It's just, you know, it's all just cherries on top. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you are doing some of the best work out there. You are certainly doing the best work. Uh, I mean, I've seen recently in terms of TV dramas and thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much, much for chatting with us. I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. So and I can't, yeah. I, I can't wait to listen to more. I will definitely be listening. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on In the Envelope. Um, Fingers crossed on a million Emmy nominations for The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Have a good one, Elizabeth. We'll see. Thank (laughs) you so much. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. This episode is brought to you by HBO's original drama series, The Leftovers, starring Justin Thoreau and Carrie Coon. Expect the unexpected as this Peabody award-winning series prepares for the seventh anniversary of The Departure. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding drama series and all other categories. Up next, we have someone who I and many others consider to be TV royalty, Hank Azaria a six-time Emmy Award winner, four for his work on Fox series The Simpsons, maybe you've heard of it, one for a 2000 TV movie called Tuesdays with Maury, and one just last season for his guest role on Showtime's Ray Donovan. This year, Hank stars in the TV movie Wizard of Lies, but we're here mostly to talk about his work in the new IFC comedy Brockmire, where he plays a disgraced baseball announcer who has a mental breakdown on the air 
and the series only gets funnier from there. He is hilarious, of course, and insightful, and has plenty of wisdom for working actors everywhere. Here's my interview with Hank Azaria. I would love to hear first about Jim Brockmeyer. Who is he? How would you describe this this man you play in your IFC series? <laughs> um, boy, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, a charismatic, alcoholic, disgraced baseball announcer who uh, melted down on the air <laughs> rather spectacularly 10 years ago after he walked in on his wife and shared much too much about it in much too graphic a fashion <laughs> in a baseball broadcast without ever missing the action of the game or failing right. to give the count because <laughs> uh, he's a pro. You know, if nothing else, he remained a pro. Yeah. And um, and then is trying to make it back into baseball 10 years later, thinking everyone's forgotten about him by now, not realizing that he's a meme, that he's a cultural icon, thanks to social media. And uh, and then hilarity ensues as the man <laughs> tries to uh, tries to make his way back into society, American society anyway. Well, and the character was first first performed to him in a short video in 2010, I believe. So this has been kind of a long time coming, right? Yeah, and it was even longer built up into that. It's a character I've been doing in one way or another sure. since I was a teenager. And then finally, we did it as a short, yeah, about eight, nine years ago. And then with the idea that if it were popular, which it did become, we would develop it. And it first was a movie, which actually got bought. And uh, we were in pre-production for lost its financing four days before shooting. And then we reconfigured it spent some time trying to get it made and then couldn't and then reconfigured it as a cable series uh, pitch, which, you know, in the end, as always, th these things go, it was, it's really its best incarnation. It, it, it was, mm -hmm. I think what it always meant to be. And so all's well that ends well, but yeah, it was a long and winding road. Sure. As it often is, right? Yes. Yes. And it's interesting too, that this is a character based on, built around this voice, I should say, that is based on real life people, right? Real life sports announcers, for one thing. Well, definitely. I mean, I'm a big sports fan, big baseball fan, and uh, I grew up really mostly in front of the television. That's where I took in Monty Python, where I took in baseball, where I took in Bugs Bunny, where I took in the Brady Bunch, Johnny Carson. I mean, everything. Mm -hmm. Imitated it, found I could mimic stuff at a pretty young age. This was one of the voices I imitated was this, uh, what I call the generic baseball announcer voice in the seventies, really generic announcer voice, not just baseball sure. yeah, and not yeah. just sports. Um, and, uh, always thought it would be a funny, you know, it stuck out to me as a, it's kind of hilarious in its own way. If you put it in the proper context, only took 30, 40 years, but I eventually yes. figured out what context would, would be funny for this guy. Well, and I've heard you say that, most, if not all, of your voiceover performances are based on this crazy, uncanny ability you have to imitate the people you you hear, everyone you hear, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess all vocal work is imitation on some level. And if you're trying to do a faithful French accent or British accent or you know Polish accent, you're imitating what you're hearing. Uh, once you get into mimicry, it's into specific right folks, like whether it's. Matthew McConaughey or, uh, you know, Al Pacino, whoever you're imitating, uh, mimicking, 
And that's a sort of special skill that you either can do or you can't. You're kind of genetically capable of that. If you're mm-hmm. plastic vocal cords or you don't, to some extent you can develop it, but I think that it's sort of something you're either born able to do or you aren't, which I, I was. And, I, and, and so, yeah, I find that most of my voices on The Simpsons or everywhere are either very good or very bad impressions of people. So I tell young you know, vocal performers this all the mm-hmm. time, you know, a bad vocal impression it's still a lovely character voice on its own, just because it's not, if you're imitating your uncle Steve, uh-huh. even if it's not a very good impression of him, if I heard it go, your uncle Steve doesn't really sound like that. It might be a very interesting character voice and the general uh, public doesn't care if it sounds a lot like your uncle Steve or not. Right. And you, you can know? create an interesting character using that as, as kind of the base to build on. Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. As you know, we're backstage. Did you ever use backstage for auditions growing up in New York? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, you know, when I was starting out in my uh-huh. early 20s, this is back in uh, mid to late 80s. That's kind of all you had. There was no online to go to. There was no, it was only a couple of publications. You'd pick them up and, and see uh, who was casting and where you could go. And I don't think I ever actually got a job. <laughs> yeah. Based on, uh, you know, but definitely went out, you know, got a lot of audition experience. Nothing else. There you go. And that audition experience was practice, right? Totally. And I tell young actors this as well. You know, if you have downtime, take a class, study, whether it's improv, whether it's with a serious coach, whether it's an audition class, a commercial class, doesn't matter. A writing class, just just continue to, uh, to work the end of stuff you can control, which isn't too much. But it is your your own deafness with your craft. I mean that that is in your control. The rest of That's, show business is wildly out of your control. Right, and for the wildly out of your control bit, you just have to know that rejection is a part of the industry and learn how to cope with that. Right. Yeah. Uh, in a word, yes. Right. I mean, um, I've been through a lot with auditioning. I, I talk to young actors about this a lot as well. Lately, I've been chatting with folks about this and it, you know the, the, par- the zen paradox of let's say you go out on three auditions a week for a year so quickly doing the math that's like uh what 150 or so auditions okay mm-hmm. if you book 10 percent of them you book 15 of them that's a huge i don't know anybody who ever does that so that, let's put that out of, right if you book five of them you get five yeah. good jobs right out of that that's a pretty great year sure uh huh. So, okay, so you're five out of 150. Uh, that's 145 no's, rejections on one level or another. That's a tremendous amount yep. of rejection in a tremendously successful year you just had. Yeah, wow. Uh, so, you know, those five jobs, say, come what? Let's say every couple of months. So in between those, that's a lot of no's. We'll kind of know yes in sight. You don't know for sure. Oh, don't worry. On February 16th, you'll definitely get a job. I mean, you don't get to know nope. that. So it, you're hanging with, on the one hand, you're so fortunate to be getting all those no's because it's not so easy even to be auditioning that much. That, that's a tremendous accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but staying positive in the face of all that becomes like your job as an actor. And you'll need to, that's a skill you'll need to continue like throughout your career, if you're fortunate enough to be successful, if you're fortunate enough to not have to audition anymore, you're still going to be dealing with rejection Mm -hmm. and a lot of it, like jobs you're not offered, 
Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. People who you know, maybe you don't get to audition, but they already think they know who you are. They don't even want to see you. The answer is just no. Right. Or right. you work really hard for six months on a project and people don't like it. It's not received well. Yeah. All these are forms of rejection that what the early part of your career is training you to do is roll with that. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Well, and your involvement in The Simpsons is always so interesting to me, like how you weren't quite, a, you didn't have a ton of voiceover experience before that gig. And now it's funny you say that there's tons of rejections, even at the highest level, and there's going to be lulls. I mean, you've been on this show since it first started airing. How did you get involved and how did that kind of carve your place in the in Hollywood? Yeah, you know, I mean, I really did win the show business lottery the day that I got that job, because, although it wasn't that apparent you mm. know, back in that day, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I had done another job for Fox Television. This was back in the days of Roger Rabbit. Everybody was trying to make some kind of combination <laughs> of animation with live action, and Fox did a, a pilot like that where, the, where this dog called Hollywood Dog was animated. <laughs> I did the voice of it. That was a failed pilot that never saw the light of day, but Fox became familiar with me because of that. And there was an open audition for, it was an open call, like you would read in backstage, but it was an audition for the voice of Mo, the bartender. And because the casting director had heard of me from that, I went in and read for it and got the job. But that was, you know, it was a voiceover gig in the early days of Fox. You never knew that any show was going to last, let alone last for 30 years. Right. It wasn't until about a year or two into that, into The Simpsons, that they made me a regular. Uh-huh. And then it wasn't until a few years in the job that I realized, wow, I'm part of not only a steady gig, but kind of a cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And then it's just the, the gift that, that kept giving um, <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And I learned a ton, especially from um, from all of them over there, but especially from Dan Castellaneta, who does the voice of Homer and others, mm-hmm. and Harry Shearer, who does Mr. Burns and many others. Those guys were such master craftsmen doing vocal work that, you know, watching them do it for years and their commitment and how, on the one hand, it was very easy for them and they had a very light touch. On the other hand, they were very diligent about how they went about things, you know, not to mention for, you know, a voice guy, which I am, but didn't even know I was, right. it was like a, it's like a lab. It was like every week I was called on to do two, three, four new voices year after year, mm-hmm. you know, and it just, it's like an incredible training ground for a yeah. vocal character actor. I mean, right. So whatever skill I had got really honed, you know, doing that. Which is true of a gig where you, you have, multiple characters to play you have one gig but multiple characters yeah then i found that you know then having done that for a few years then studying with roy london really kind of deepened that that kind of that was sort of all about for me being myself you know not being a voice or not Mm. being funny uh but just kind of being myself on stage which i was much more uncomfortable doing than you know doing the voice in chief wiggum or something but when i it was when i started you know to combine those two skills of bringing myself to a role and then also providing uh, an amusing voice for it that I found like, I even found my Simpsons work, my vocal work got funnier, got better. And to bring the conversation full circle, 
that's really what I feel like I'm getting into with Brockmeyer. It's like, it's a, it's a funny voice. It's a fun imitation and it's funny just to listen to, but I feel like I, you know, the work I did with Roy and the acting work I've done for 30 years, I get to really kind of bring all that to bear. It's very satisfying on that level. Absolutely. I mean, the show is, is hilarious and you have these really hilarious zingers, but it's also, he is very much a real grounded character and there's some really dark, uncomfortably dark elements to it. So I hear what you're saying about the, you're bringing the personal to it at the same time that you're able to not hide behind a voice, but use a voice to get at that truth. Yeah. Or sometimes both, you know, and I was fortunate enough to hook up with a really wonderful young writer named Joel Church Cooper, who Mm -hmm. kind of saw more depth and darkness in it than I did even when I created the character and with a really extraordinary director named Tim Kirkby, who's done a ton of stuff, but is very, very gifted at being sensitive to and aware of and capturing all characters, the kind of the emotional truth and, mm. and, and darkness, as you just said, of people while not losing the joke or using or losing the comedy pacing or, you know, losing the surface of what needs to be there. But he's highly aware of um, the depth of the thing, uh, which really came, came through, I think, as well. Absolutely. Because this podcast, this is our very first podcast that we've launched, and we're, we're still sort of finding our way, but I'd love to ask you about your relationship with awards in general, but specifically with the Emmys. You have won six acting Emmys for your work on television. Congratulations, by the way. And, uh, Thank you. And so I'm wondering, how, what is it like? <laughs> first of all, what does it entail? And uh, how does it feel to have reached that level? Um. It's great. Uh, it's very gratifying. You know, I'd be crazy to say it's annoying. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. and, and it's not. But, I, you know, awards are interesting. First of all, I've won, I've won four for The Simpsons. Those are what they call craft Emmys, which you, they don't give out at the award, Emmy Awards that you see on television. There's another show that happens a week before that where right. they give out a lot of technical awards and and they include voiceovers in that category, as well as guest actor, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I won last year. Um, yeah. If you win as guest actor, you get to present at the, at the big boy <laughs> the following <laughs> right. week, which was what right. happened to me last year. Yeah. There's only one time where I ever had the experience of sitting in the, you know, like being nominated. When I won for Tuesdays at Maury, I won Best Supporting Actor in a, in a, in a drama movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I had the experience of, of, you know, sitting there in the audience, having your name read, read it out of an envelope. Boy, that's a real adrenaline rush. It's really <laughs> exciting. Sure. And, uh, you know, it just feels like you would imagine it would, uh, having seen it on TV a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the truth about awards is, you know, it, it's a cliche. They say it's an honor just to be nominated. It really is, because <laughs> any given year, who actually wins? who actually yeah. doesn't win. It's a little arbitrary. Like, I guess in general, they get the right person, but you know, sometimes they're just awarding people for their careers and not so much the role that they did that particular time, or sometimes they're awarding people for, sometimes it's just a timing thing. Like, mm-hmm. well, that just came out more recently, so it's more fresh in people's minds. Sometimes that has a lot to do with who actually wins or just who ha- had a better press campaign <laughs> going into the thing, who got more exposed and... Who right. had a better story leading into it? You know, it's kind of like the MVP award in sports. It's generally a meritocracy, but it also has to do with the moment and, and, and things that, besides 
the actual performance. Then you kind of get into this argument, like, well, can you actually really say what's better? Like, right. you know, how do you actually compare the apples and oranges of one performance to another? Uh, so over time, what I'm really kind of most proud of is having been nominated a bunch of times and mm-hmm. people feel like consistently my work deserves that kind of attention. Yeah. Uh, any given year, it, in a way you feel like the awards you win, uh, you know, it's like, I actually think I deserved it more for this thing I did three years ago, yeah, right, but you right. know, I guess it all evens out in the end, or I didn't think I really did deserve it for this one. I last won, but all right, I'm happy to take it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Well, and that's cool. You mentioned the, the publicity aspect of it too. Like when you're promoting a new show like Brockmire and you want it to be picked up for season two, which congratulations, it's been picked up for season two, but like, do you sit down and make a plan with your team for how to do the publicity aspect of it? Yes, absolutely. You know, publicity like that is a commodity. It's part of your job. It's mm-hmm. absolutely what you owe the studio, uh, the network, and yourself. I mean, awards bring attention to a show. So uh, partly from being like personal victories. I mean, they, they're meaningful from a business standpoint. I mean, if like Brockmire won, you know, three Emmys, yeah, I promise you, our our audience would enlarge, which is a big deal, you know, for advertisers and the network and all kinds mm-hmm. of things. So you're, it's part of you know the show business machinery. Mm-hmm. You need to honor it by you know doing your part and promoting it as much as you can. I mean, it's also personal and mm-hmm. personal glory and blah blah blah. But um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a business. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and. Yeah. Maybe this is a too broad a question, but how can a backstage actor or how can any aspiring actor win an Emmy? Like, what is the step-by-step process needed to get to that point? Well, I'm pretty sure, first of all, you definitely need to be working in television. <laughs> so that would be <laughs> a definite. But, you know, I, that was a fairly glib answer, but it's all to me a career, a career is about next indicated step and kind of getting to the next level. You know, so the first mm-hmm. thing is, Am I, you know, for a backstage actor, it's getting out there, getting seen, learning your craft, controlling the things you can control, like I said, which is where you study, how you improve, getting auditions. Like that was a big threshold, like we were saying in the beginning of the conversation. I mean, even being in a position where you're being rejected a hundred times in a year, that's a huge accomplishment to get out there and be seen that much. Absolutely. Um, That's kind of phase one, get an agent, get, get out there and get seen then getting jobs, then getting good enough at your craft where you're getting singled out and getting better jobs and getting the kind of roles that might get considered mm. for an award. You know, I skipped no step in my career. I didn't, I wasn't like walking around at age 22 and got plucked out and, um, you know, right. starring in the next big movie. I, sure. you know, got a line here, got a line there, you know, uh, got a recurring role, uh, got some guest spots. Did a bunch of pilots, never saw the light of day. Finally got on a series. Wasn't great, but at least I learned a lot and worked consistently. Uh, I had a few key breaks along the way, but, you know, I was ready for them, right? Um, yeah. What's the saying, old Chinese saying? Uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. What you can control is the preparation. And all you can do is kind of focus on what you can do, what's within your reach that day. And if you do that for enough days in a row, eventually you may find yourself with a nomination. That's excellent advice. I am sure if actors follow it, they will be on that Emmy stage in no time. Or they won't. <laughs> or they won't. 
And, you know, that's okay, too. Well, you know, I believe in the social Darwinism of Hollywood and, and <laughs> Broadway. I mean, really, if you put yourself out there and do your best with all this, show business will let you know if it wants to include you or not. You, yeah. have, no, you, can, you have no doubt of that. It's yeah. not show business isn't shy. <laughs> It'll no. tell you what it thinks of you. Yeah, that's yeah. good advice too. Absolutely. I'm going to ask yeah. you a couple kind of rapid fire questions that you can answer from the heart. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Who is as of this moment your favorite actor? Brian Cranston. Ooh, wonderful. We might uh, be including him on this podcast as well. Oh, cool. He's an yeah. awesome. He not only a great actor, he's a great guy. Cool, cool, cool. What was the last TV show you watched? I am currently binge watching Legion. Oh, cool. Enjoying it very much. Excellent. Uh, What about the last like on-screen performance that really made you sit up and take notice? A really great performance or moment of acting? There have been several. I must say just last night, keeping with the Legion thing, I was pretty struck with Dan Stevens' work. Mm -hmm. Uh, That guy deserves an Emmy nomination, in my opinion. sure. Oh, I, I have um, a plug. I, I'll answer that question self-servingly by t- plugging two <laughs> projects I'm in. <laughs> sure. I'm in, I have a movie right now. I have a small part in a movie called Norman with Richard Gere. And Richard Gere's mm-hmm. work in it, I must say, is kind of breathtaking. Cool. And I was also fortunate enough to be in this H- HBO movie about Bernie Madoff called The yes. Wizard of Lies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And De Niro, Michelle Pfeiffer, Alessandro Nivola. Mm. And Nathan Darrow, all of who, who play, the, play the immediate Madoff family, are all stunning in it. Really stunning. Wonderful. They're incredible. Yeah, I'm yeah. so excited to That'll see. That'll be on May 20th. Well, and so what is great acting to you? I'll answer the way my late great actor, he's your Roy London, would answer that. You would say that great actors, they are willing on a stage or on camera to share their honest self, to be really authentically who they are uh, in front of people, which sounds like a simple thing. Mm. But like I said, for me, I was comfortable. I became an actor because I wanted to be other people besides myself. I wanted to imitate, you know, others, Woody Allen, Al Pacino, De Niro, Steve Martin. I wanted to mimic and imitate. And I I found I could mimic them Mm -hmm. rather convincingly. So that's what I wanted to do. Much to my chagrin, I discovered that to be a good actor, let alone be a great actor, you needed to kind of share yourself, honestly, in front of people. And I was very uncomfortable doing that. I had this kind of deep-seated belief that um, not only was I not comfortable doing it, and I was afraid to do it, but I had a belief that it was uninteresting. But, you know, De Niro is interesting. I'm who am I? You know. <laughs> so, but it wasn't until Roy convinced me that, look, that might be true, but it's all I have, really. That's the only those the only colors I can paint with mm-hmm. are, are who I really am. And it was only until I really um, gave into that and was willing to just kind of honestly be myself mm-hmm. in any given role. Even if I was sounding like Jim Brockmeyer or sounding <laughs> like Agador from The Simpsons or like the French Stunter in Monty Python, whatever <laughs> I had to, you know, Hank had to be who I really was. I had to be the motor of all that. You know, the great, you know, the De Niro's and Streets and Gene Hackman's and Brian Cranston's of the world are willing to do that in every given moment. Pretty great to watch. Yeah, that was an amazing answer. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you, Jack. Pleasure talking to you. And um, keep breaking legs out there. 
Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Um, all right, Hank. Have and a good one. Everybody, binge watch Jim Brockmire. You won't regret <laughs> it. I promise. Money back guarantee if you don't laugh and want to watch the next one. <laughs> awesome. So who knew that the key to winning multiple Emmy Awards and to being considered TV royalty is uh, be your authentic self yeah, as much as possible, right? Yeah, that sounds easier said than done. Absolutely. As with all the advice we've heard so far. But I suppose it comes with the confidence of winning mm-hmm. six Emmys and sure. being on a huge show. And like Hank said, just putting in the work and facing a lot of rejection and putting in your paces it helps that he was on one of the most successful television shows of all time of course but he paid his dues by that point That's right you know, he'd done a, an awful lot of auditions yep well i'm really glad that we got one of the kings of voiceover onto our podcast yeah and heard his dulcet tones over the sound of the airwaves because that guy is really something yeah really close to my heart yeah <laughs> that subject matter so absolutely I'm between thrilled. him and elizabeth moss this was the voiceover episode <laughs> Oh, yeah. This is so great how different themes keep emerging in each episode. I yeah. certainly didn't start out almost like we to... didn't plan it. <laughs> <laughs> and if any actors do become successful as a result of listening to this podcast, <laughs> Please we'll let take us 10%. Know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let us know, and we will have you on next season of In the Envelope. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon, if you're listening, please come on the podcast. <laughs> Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe for more interviews from the front lines of the 2017 Emmy race. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City. Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Moss and Hank Azaria. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, as always, to producer, editor, and all-around podcast whiz, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, the most trusted name in casting. Peter Rappaport, Ryan Remstad, Jesse Balashek, Francis Ramos, Rowan Al-Khatib, and especially the incandescent Casey Howe, thanks so much. For more awards and industry coverage, head over to Backstage.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Tune in next week for another glimpse in the envelope. <laughs>